Kia what's up everyone? I'm Jonathan, and you're tuned in to the Honest Theology Podcast, where the aim here is to have open and honest theological conversations about lots of different things. This is Season 3, Who, What, When, Where, Why is the Church? For each episode, the guest and I are going to delve into the point and purpose of the church. I have seven different guests with seven different experiences and seven different perspectives. No, wait, check that. Eight. Eight different guests with eight different experiences and eight different perspectives over seven episodes. And we'll just talk about the theology of the church and our mission. Honestly, there's not much more to it than that, so let's go. Hey there, and welcome back to the Honest Theology Podcast. This is episode three, season three, Who, What, When, Where, Why is the Church? And I am really excited to have on today's guest. He's actually the first person I wanted to have on this season. In fact, he kind of inspired the season and the questions I've been asking of the church because he's done so much work in this realm and is doing so much work on behalf of the wider church, exploring what the role of the church in today's postmodern, post-Christendom, hyper-polarized, diverse and complex world means and is. Uh, he is the Kerry Olson Balson. Is it Balson or Balson? I should ask you that. I, I think you got it. Balson. You know, you just got to say it with confidence. Balson. However, you say it, it's good. Yes. I'm going to start over <laughs> with confidence. <laughs> I really don't know, to be completely honest. So, <laughs> so you're not friends with Kerry. Right. No. He is the Kerry Olson Balson Professor of Youth and Family Ministry at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota. He is a Twins fan but he knows that Kent Herbeck pulled Ron Gant's leg off the base, and he's cool in my book. Braves fans, he's all right. So he has written many books, including not sports-related, but including, uh, I don't know, have you written sports books? I don't think you have. Not yet. Not yet, but maybe one day. He has written many books, uh, including most recently a four-volume ministry in Secular Age series with titles Churches in the Crisis of Decline, uh, the Congregation in a Secular Age, The Pastor in a Secular Age, and Faith Formation in a Secular Age, and also uh, other other recent relevant titles, The End of Youth Ministry, question mark, and uh, The Church After Innovation, all very, very intriguing titles and topics to say the least. He also has his own podcast called, get this, When the Church Stops Working, and I highly recommend you check that out as well. Uh, look, he's a highly sought-after speaker, a great, really great teacher. I know because he was involved in my formation as a youth pastor and in my ministry training, and I'm more than happy to have him on today. Welcome to the show, Dr. Andrew Root. Kia ora, Andy. How are you? Hey. Wow, look at that. Gosh. There, there's just, there's thousands and thousands of people here. It's just so- <laughs> I, I, I Overwhelming. So good about the applause. Yeah, good to see you, man. Thanks for it's having really, me. Yeah, yeah, good to see you. Thanks for joining us. Um, would you want to do a quick summary of sort of like I don't know, your faith journey a little bit to this point as a f- sort of introduction to who you are for our listeners? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I mean, thanks for the nice introduction and everything like that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess in some ways, kind of like working backwards, and since we're talking about the church, is that. Uh, I obviously teach in a seminary and, and, and train pastors and educate pastors and things like that. But my wife is a pastor of a small church in South Minneapolis. So that's a major part of our life is thinking about that and thinking about what it means to 
be part of for me and, and lead for my wife a, a, a congregation. Mm. And so that's a huge piece of it that uh, continues to feed our lives. But for me, it really is. I mean, I, I've, I try to focus really broadly on ministry and thinking theologically about the task of ministry, doing a lot of kind of uh, you know, social philosophy around the kind of cultural time we're in. But obviously young people and, and, and children and youth have been a central kind of focus of my life. And that's because my own faith story really rests there. I mean, not only was my church somewhere when I was pretty young that kind of called me into ministry, not necessarily formally, but in <laughs> some ways formally, like just like pushing me into doing things that was really significant, even as, you know, like a 12, 13 year old, um, you know, giving Lent, uh, yeah. Lent service talks or, mm-hmm. you know, like running, helping run VBS and things like that. But for me, it really all goes back to being six years old and having, uh, I don't know. I don't know how I say it. I mean, it, it, the word trauma is thrown around too much. I mm-hmm. think in our, our day, like it, it, it feels like it's a very, uh, it's a word that people use for a lot of stuff. But my, my experience as a young person was that the first friend I ever had, um, I think we, met when we were like four years old he ended up getting cancer by the time he was five and dying by the time he was six and um i I was being raised by kind of these baby boomer parents who uh probably weren't able to kind of get me to speak of my emotions or would have never even thought that you should take you know your kid who experiences this to to talk to somebody or to get some kind of pastoral care or something but those kind of manifested in a lot of uh uh, just fears for me as a kid. And then I had this this experience when we moved houses when I was six of of falling in a hole. Mm. And the hole was actually a dugout um, in the part of the world I live in. We have basements. And so, you know, when you build a house, you dig down the foundation. It was just two houses away from us, the same direction that uh, the neighborhood we used to live in where Benjamin, who died, had lived. And I, uh, my mom told me, never go by that hole like stay away from that you know mm-hmm. and of course that mean I went directly towards it and one night at dusk I was I don't know what I was doing I mean there there's this kind of weird existential thing that it, it manifested it was like this hole was all the scary things in the world and then I I fell into it at, right at dusk and I was just wow. absolutely frightened now truth is truth be told I was not in danger I was in a suburb and you know the early 1980s and if I would not have come home in 15 more minutes they would have found me <laughs> and you know like the hole I was in was like you know maybe eight feet like it was not you know my life was not in danger but I was frightened mm-hmm. I was absolutely frightened by this and the only thing I could do was what all of these kind of older Lutheran ladies had taught me in my church, which was to pray. And I prayed and I really had this distinct feeling that the very presence of Jesus Christ was there and hearing the voice of, of, of Jesus tell me to run and mm-hmm. I ran myself out of that hole. And then just like, you know, um, we're at least recording this near Easter and just like the women at the tomb, I ran into my house and, you know, yelled to my mom, I fell in the hole and Jesus, Jesus saved me and Jesus got me out of it, you know. Um, in that experience, you know, as in, in some ways as, I wouldn't call it pathetic, but as kind of naive as it is, mm-hmm. as kind of cute as it is, all cased in this kind of Western religious Protestant kind of garb, uh, stuck with me. And there's still this real dynamic of having encountered the very presence of Jesus Christ who mm. saves, who, who, who gets us out of holes, who, who finds us in, in dark places, which, you know, mine was literally a dark place of this, this kind of mm-hmm. hole, mm-hmm. but it was also this deeply, deeply dark place metaphorically of, of, of 
realizing at a very young age that I lived in a world that was a quite dangerous place where four-year-olds could get struck with cancer and be stripped from the earth, you know? So um, the fact that Jesus Christ met me in that and that I really felt in in a significant way ministered to by the presence of God that like that's that's never left me and so um it's again why i find it so interesting to even trace like theologians like dietrich bonhoeffer who go back to children as kind of manifesting this wisdom of our of our encounter with the presence of jesus christ Mm. because that was my own experience as a you know as a six-year-old wow yeah cool yeah well, that's great. Hey, I like to ask my guests um, some random questions to help us get to know you a little bit deeper in a yeah. completely different way. Um, so uh, just off the top of your head, just whatever comes to mind. Uh, which aquatic animal most fascinates you? Which aquatic animal? Uh, it's, it seems like I, I just have to, you know, I don't know. It seems like I should have a rainbow in uh, <laughs> on my bedroom wall if I say dolphins, but they kind of do. Yeah, uh, yeah. They're they're kind of. I don't know. Dolphins are kind of cool. I, I think in general, like uh, maybe to pivot away from dolphins, like whales. I've always been very interested in in, in whales, yeah. and uh, uh, I've had the opportunity to see some whales in Hawaii at, at times, and those are those are pretty uh, transcendent experiences when uh, when you're pretty close to a to a breaching whale. So yeah, totally. Uh, the reason I asked you that question is because my daughter is now upset. Like, we look for whale watching, like whale breaching videos, like before she goes to bed, <laughs> she wants to see something in the ocean and we tend to watch whales. Yeah, yeah. So that's cool. Good answer. Good answer. Okay. okay. Um, right. How many, how many of the 10,000 lakes in Minnesota have you visited? <laughs> Great question. Uh, the first thing any true Minnesotan would tell you is there's actually more than 10,000. You know what I mean? Like we, 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 10,000 is just a, a, a very rounding low, down. Round yeah, yeah. 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 We're, we're more like probably 12,000. I've probably been to, I don't know. I mean, I've probably been to a couple hundred only, man. Like, you know, like it's, uh, we also are pretty liberal in how we count them too. You know, like we don't count ponds, but it's, it's any bigger than a pond. Like if you if you can get a, a canoe in it, it's a lake to right. us. But uh, we have some pretty big ones too, obviously. But uh, yeah. so I, 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 let's let's just say this: like I'll this is overblowing it, but we'll say I've been to ten percent of them. Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Um, now I know that you love dogs. You also have a book yeah. called The Grace of Dogs. Uh, is there a particular breed you're enamored with or that you always go for or maybe one that you've always wanted but never had? Well, this is a this is a, a tragic topic in, in my family right now because uh, I don't know if your listeners are aware, but for the first time in a, at least, um, in a, I don't know if this is global or it's just North American, but uh, the, for the first time, at least in North America, the Labrador Retriever. I guess the first time in like 30 years is no longer the number most, one. Uh, the high, yeah, it's not number one. Like wow. the, the French bulldog is number one or something. No way. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're, we're Labrador people all the way. And I know it's a little basic and, you know, um, but uh, a little, a little sitcom but we love labs. Mm. We absolutely love labs. So we're, uh, we're on our, our second lab. My wife grew up with a lab and uh, we had a golden retriever too for a while and mm. we loved, loved him, but he was kind of, Dumb as the day. Yeah, they can be kind of dumb. They're fun. He was so sweet, but he was so dumb. And our our labs are always sweet and and very smart. (laughs) And when you live in Minnesota, and we're right now in the middle of all the the snow melting, um, lab fur is perfect to clean mud off. It's very easy to 
to wipe a mm. to wipe a dog clean where a golden retriever man that fur just is like sponge to to muddy water so very good hence the cover of, of your book i suppose yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um yeah. okay and finally uh What's one meaningful memory, good or bad, that you have from being in a church community, and how has that helped shape who you are and what you do now? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'd really go back to that first story yeah. you know, that mm-hmm. I, I led into is that, uh, yeah, I mean, I think being in that that church community gave me this kind of, as a kid, gave me this sense that um, when you're up against great darkness, that you can pray, that you can, you know, open yourself up to a God who can move in your life and can, yeah, can yeah. rescue you, can can save you in, in, in a real way or in, in a kind of existential way or, or can be present and, and can minister to you. So, mm. um, yeah, that's really stuck with me both kind of intellectually and, and, and practically in my own life. Yeah, great. Cool. Thanks for that. So, like I said in the open, um, I've been wanting to talk to you and pick your brain and hear stories from you for quite a while on this topic. Who, what, when, where, why is the church? Um, you have a when in the title of your podcast, When the Church Stops Working. Uh, why don't we start with that then, I guess? Like, in what ways has the church stopped working and when did that, when did that begin? Yeah. yeah, well, when you said when, I was really racking my brain and it was taking me back. You're wearing your Atlanta Braves hat right now. <laughs> and, uh, I was thinking when, like, you know, W-I-N, like, you know, like uh, like when the Twins won the World Series in 1991 and, and, and beat the Atlanta Braves. And uh, that was a really dirty lead-in, too, saying that Ken Herbeck pulled Ron Gant off of... Off I'm going to edit this uh, out, you know. I, can, I got the yeah, power. I know you're going to edit this out, but yeah. But you shouldn't because no. your viewers, your your viewers, and your I don't know, your your, your listeners. I don't know if you have viewers. Um, they need they need to know the truth. But okay. uh, yeah, so the title of this <laughs> to try to get us back on track. The title of the podcast and the book, and obviously you can see there's a little bit of a you know late neoliberal necessity to market here. So the podcast name changed to match this book that was coming mm-hmm. out. But when the church when the church stops working, which you know. W-H-E-N. Um, yeah, when did it stop working? I mean, there's a kind of double meaning in this is that I think people broadly across the West kind of feel like at least Protestantism in many ways, maybe maybe Catholics and Orthodox feel similar, but at least Protestants kind of feel like the church doesn't work anymore. And what, part of my biggest fear with that interpretation is it means that we have to kind of revitalize it in a certain way that makes the church need to work harder. Mm. Um, and I think part of our issue is there's you know, like, this is my point of the double meaning is that when the, when the church isn't working is also where the church finds the gift of the very presence of Jesus Christ. Mm. And so I think there is this huge tendency in this back, the backdrop of this kind of secular age that leads us to kind of interpret our biggest issue as being declined and fewer people coming and the church having less relevance in our cultural context. I mean, this is a very easy thing for Americans to kind of existentially feel my my guess is, and and from talking to Kiwis and others, that this doesn't yeah. feel as as sharp of an issue. You know that you, you you're not kind of on the on the backside of of or have memory yeah. of when the cultural is this the church was this really relevant cultural force. Yeah, well, it's kind of it's kind of um, different here in a way because like because we're we're a more of a secular nation. Like the church is yeah. like Christians are a minority here. Uh, we've already kind of gone through that whole shift. Um, you know, a couple, like a couple of generations, like a generation ago, kind of went through that shift of the church no longer being the presence that it once was here. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I, I mean, there's a kind of irony here is that I want us to tr not try to double down on our own action to try to, to try to save us, you know, mm -hmm. that there, there is, I think there's something inherent in um, some of the beautiful kind of theological perspectives that come out of Protestantism and out of the early Reformation uh, that it isn't necessarily in what we do that kind of saves us or, or frees us from whatever crisis we're in, but it really is the receiving of, of the gifts of God, of the, of the promises of God. And so there is a sense in the title that the church isn't functioning kind of as it should maybe, uh, when it used to maybe. Um, but it also is a sense of that the church has this deep temptation of, of trying to do more mm -hmm. and that there is a gift in trying to stop trying to save ourselves, um, and that it does become a more theological question of how do we um, put ourselves in a disposition, in a kind of prayerful disp disposition of receiving um, the presence of God and the direction of God um, yeah. as a church. So what what does that look like? Or have you experienced that? What are some, what are some examples of how to prepare for that? Or Yeah, yeah, well, that... Yeah, I mean, I always feel a little insecure about it because it, it doesn't, I wish I could say, well, there's eight things that you must do. And yeah. um, here's the link to the website where I have those and there's, mm -hmm. it's behind a paywall. So just <laughs> click that, you know, drop in a couple hundred bucks and then I'll give you my secrets. But I do think, I mean, this seems really kind of pietistic, but, uh, you know, it goes back to being a six-year-old in that hole again. There is a real sense of how do we teach people in the church or how does the church become a real place of prayer where people are taught how to pray mm -hmm. um, and are together in a way praying for one another and praying for the world. And, uh, you know, that that often doesn't seem like it's it's enough, which is, I think, kind of ironic, you know, of, of how we don't think that's that's enough. But I think that becomes a really first step here is how do we think of the, of the, the community as we think about the church as a place that prays mm -hmm. and that teaches people to pray. Um, and that uh, then narrates the very shape of our lives that need prayer or narrates the places in the world that need prayer. So it's, it's a place where we tell our stories as prayer and then pray our stories. Um, I think it, it becomes a really significant piece, which then has another layer dimension to that, which, which will necessitate that the church is a community of relationships um, where people really care for one another. And the, and the, probably the kind of red thread of uh, the thing that I've been trying to address in all of my work is just a deep temptation that happens inside of, of modernity in, in the modern project to instrumentalize all the relationships that we have. So, um, and that, that then, you know, when the church feels threatened by decline or loss, there becomes this real deep sense that even our relationships with one another have to be used to parlay them into some kind of resources or some kind of advantage or some kind of leverage to uh, help us find our institution to find kind of revitalization. Mm. And I think that fundamentally will corrupt the kind of spirit um, that a community needs to be that really just shares in each other's lives for the sake of ministering to one another yeah. and uh, praying and, and walking through life together um, in a kind of narrative shape that we, you know, we try to tell our stories in the very shape of, of the, the story of Jesus Christ's own life and, and try to pray those stories yeah. and, um, 
embody those in the world. So it is a kind of stance. I mean, this is why when the church stops working, that there is a kind of call here that I'm, I'm echoing from you know, Luther's own work of, of this call into kind of passivity. And I know for us late modern capitalists, like the thought of being passive feels like a utter violation. You know what I mean? Like you feel like you got to do more, do more with mm-hmm. less, get more out of this. Mm-hmm. And yet I do think that there, um, that this drive to do more often gets us more in trouble. And how do we take on certain practices that allow us to kind of rest and discern and try to see and try to be with each other um, instead of just trying to expend more energy to right. try to to win? You know, I guess it's back to the different kind of win, right. you know, yeah. The, yeah. the W-I-N, where, um, you know, instead of being the win of, like, when can we be together? What does it mean to be these people um, in this place with each other? There's a deep sense of like, how can us being together win us something for our future? Mm. And uh, that's a very, very modern temptation to just not be able to be in the present and always thinking about how do we make sure the future is good? How do we make sure the future um, is viable? And uh, I think that most minute most leaders in ministry right now often feel that kind of burden of the future more than right. the call to be faithful in the present with these people right now. Yeah. Yeah. Cause even when you were talking, when you were saying that at the beginning and you're like, you know, I loved what you were saying about um, being a community that, that prays. So like, I guess I was picking up that that is, that's kind of your, what that's what, that's what the church is, is a community that, that prays. And from that grows the community and the care for one another and, um, and the discernment of where God's calling you to action. Um, but I was, I couldn't help but thinking, um, you know, that that sounds a little bit insular, like where, 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 if, if we're just, if we're just praying together, if the com- church is a community that's already formed, um, how does it grow? And I mean, mm-hmm. logically, I guess if you're listening to God, you know, God's probably going to lead you into interactions with other people. But, but generally speaking, um, what does what does uh, what does evangelism <laughs> look like um, when 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 we're focusing on the present time and prayer so much? And yeah, yeah, that's, it's it's a great question. I mean, I think the first thing I would want to say in response to that is um, that we first have to be really, and I guess this links up to the win question too. We have to be really, we have to become aware of where the church fits in this story that's going on. Um, and it's really very easy for us to assume that the church is the star of its own story. You know what I mean? Like you, you hear consultants say this all the time to people who are leading congregations. Like you have to figure out your church's story, why your church exists. Right. You need to tell your story over and over again. And, you, and, and, you know, sometimes we, we think about this in kind of mission statements or whatever, but there, there's a real necessity. And this is true just about with every modern institution now too. You know, like you have to tell your story on why, you know, the Republican Party should exist or, you know, the tell your story on why, um, you know, Applebee's should be the lead restaurant in your neighborhood. Now, that's that's a funny joke for your American listeners. You're, <laughs> you're Kiwi in Australia. Well, we should get an Applebee's yeah. over here in Christchurch. There you, 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 <laughs> you need it, man. It's the, uh, yeah, the, the neighborhood place. Um, but uh, now see it. Now I lost my train of thought. I, I started to think about Applebee's seasoned fries, and it's all—it's it's all, all over. Uh, it's all over. Uh, but there is this deep temptation that you know, if you're going to survive, 
if you're going to make inroads in marketing yourself, to put it crassly, you got to be able to tell your story, mm. tell people why you matter. And yet that's a huge theological problem because the church is never to be the star of the story. The star of the story is God. Mm. And the church isn't even the secondary character. Like this, the church doesn't even get to be up for the Oscar on uh, best supporting actor. You know, that the, the second move of the story is the world. God's ministry is to the world. And the church has an incredibly significant role to play, but it's a humble role. The mm. church's job is to narrate the ministry of God in the world, the act of God to save the world. Wow. And so I think the first stance here has to be the church thinking, the w first way to be out of itself, to come out of itself, which I really definitely agree with you that the church is always eccentric. It is always coming out of itself um, to go into the world, to minister to the world. Um, but it is, it is proclaiming to the world that God is bringing salvation to the world. Mm. And the church's job is just to be the narrator, to try to narrate that experience and then try to participate in it by taking the form of God. And God's form to the world is to minister life to the world, to minister life out of death to the world. So the church has to pray so that it can go into the world and enter into the experiences of the world's death and participate in God's life. So obviously when we pray, when we worship, God is present in the midst of that. But I, I would want to make an assertion that God is uh, primarily present, ministering life out of death in the world. Mm. And that the church needs to be present um, to that, not to make it happen, but to witness to it, to proclaim it, um, to amplify it with word and, and deed, um, but that God is doing God's work. So that that really does take us take us out of ourselves at, yeah. at a certain level is that once we have a view of God, that God is a minister who is bringing life to the world, then we could never assume, and we should never assume, assume that, that we somehow possess God. But when it all becomes about our story and what really matters is that your church finds a way to thrive. It's very interesting how God is no longer God, but God is a mascot, which really is a, a kind of product that you sell. So you need to tell everyone in your community the church's story so you can sell mm. the product of God. And I, I do think that's a very, oh, very flat view of God, that the, that the church uh, proclaims a God who is God, and this God is bringing salvation to the world, and that will always take us out of ourselves, that will always take us out into the world, and that the church is just a community that discerns and then goes out into the world to minister to the world. Mm. It's really good. Uh, I heard you talk about um, on one of your one of your podcasts not too long ago um, the phrase uh, uh, like the church in waiting, an ecclesiology of the church in waiting. And I mean, this whole thing's about this whole season's about what ecclesiology. What, what does the church mean? What does what does that mean? Um, you want to unpack that a little bit? The uh, church in waiting. It seems like it's kind of what you've been talking about, like yeah, listening and, yeah. yeah. Yeah, listening. I mean, to me, I mean, in many ways, prayer is a, is a deep sense of communing with God and communing with one another as we commune with God. But it is it is a real way of waiting, um, waiting for God to lead us, waiting for the Spirit to move. And I and I just do feel like you know there inside this kind of sense of of our modern conception of what qualifies as good action that we do have this belief that the best action is the action that expends the most energy. You know, like, because we don't really have an inherent view of of kind of maybe certain actions being holy or other, you know, like we, we have a kind of sense that we, we don't know. Like, I'm just thinking like the medieval period where you had basically three forms of action. Mm. You had people in a society who prayed, 
the monks and others. You had people who worked the land, and then you had people who killed, which sounds very, you know, um, I don't know. It sounds like some kind of Kill Bill movie or something like that, you know. Um, But really meant the knights, you know, the the knights who protected the realm. And there was a certain sense that the best kind of action, of course, was the praying action, was the action of of the monks and to a lesser degree the priests and others. And then everyone else filed below that. Mm. Um, But there was that was the kind of form of action that was the the best. But one of the moves that, that happens after the Reformation is we really do have this deep sense that all action is equal now that it really doesn't matter. I mean, Luther says this himself. Like, if it, it, it doesn't matter if you are if you are a priest at the table or you're a mother changing diapers. These All are, all these actions are done before God. So all action is equalized. Mm-hmm. And there isn't this sense of different kind of levels of layers or hierarchy of action. But once that that meets a kind of 19th century sense of where we, we start to take God out of that, and, and it, it isn't like the Puritans trying to make every act a priestly act before God, even if it's selling buttons. Well, then the only really value marker we have in our late modern world of what makes for a good action is the actions that expend the most energy Mm. are the best actions. I don't know. I mean, uh, Jonathan, you're probably a a, a much uh, holier man than me, but whenever I fight with my wife, um, whenever we end up in arguments in the midst of our mutual exhaustion, there always becomes, when we're at our worst, this kind of uh, positioning for who's who, whatever one of us has had to do this last week, how ours has been expended more energy than the other one. You know, like, right. well, I've been up since yeah, yeah, 4 a.m. Yeah. with yeah. sick kids. Yeah. No, no, well, you have no idea what it's like. I, the work is crazy, right? You know, like, there's all this kind of who has expended, expended the most energy yeah, should mm-hmm. be given mm-hmm. the honor for having done the best work. Right. So, again, this becomes a backdrop that I really worry about how we imagine the context of ministry is that the best churches, the best pastors yeah, yeah. then become what the busiest and so we we tend to across the western world make this assumption that those who are acting the best are the busiest mm. you know like we know busyness is a problem and that it could lead to huge forms of burnout and that stress is not good for our health but at the same time we take a lot of pride in being busy you yeah, know yeah. being busy means you're doing well and it is quite amazing how busy people busy middle class people tend to look for very busy churches to be part of and one of the way that the churches draw those busy people is to be a very busy place with a lot of programs and a lot going on. Mm. And um, and I'm just concerned that when we have that kind of perspective, it becomes very easy as to, for us to kind of glorify pastoral action and, and ministry leadership that really becomes, oh, just just hyperactive and, and cannot take the stance of really waiting um, and therefore that has to kind of operate, even if you don't believe it, operates out of a sense of a God who doesn't act, that a God who needs us to act, that our action is even has more efficacy than God's own. Mm. And so I do think that there's a deep kind of sense within the psalmists and in the Christian tradition, um, and particularly within the mystical Christian tradition, that the first stance to encounter the living God is to stop and to wait mm. um, and to take on practices and just an overall kind of disposition of doing less, not more. Um, and so that's what kind of I mean by the waiting church. So what would it mean for us to wait, um, not to glorify inaction, but to really try to hear the God who is God, who will call us into action. But this action may be more of an action of participation and living with than like 
doing, mm-hmm. done, uh, like creating something uh, profound. It may be like Jesus' kind of parables of um, the kind of action that is this, this kind of very slight but beautiful action of just making sure that this person um, who they find on the side of the road has somewhere to be or is like, you know, an old woman who sweeps her house all day just looking for a coin. You know, yeah, like, yeah. it'll be this kind of this kind of action, which is really quite profound, but has a kind of moral horizon of, um, yeah, of, of participation in, in, in a fullness uh, that does connect, I think, with the Hebrew tradition that ultimately what God gives us is the shalom of peace and rest. Mm. It's good. It's good. You mentioned uh, you mentioned the Reformation, um, and sort of the, there was a shift in that in that uh, actioning or the the importance of things um, through that point. And I'm just wondering, like, um, with what with what you're saying, and also echoing what I'm seeing and what I, uh, you know of of what the state of the church is in the West here today. Um, do you think that we're in need of a, a new reformation or perhaps even in the midst of a reformation moment? What is your anticipation yeah, really, of, of what a new reformation might, like where this might yeah. go? Yeah. It, it's interesting that Protestants and, and, you know, probably no one's a more Uber Protestant than I am. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and I mean that kind of theologically more than like, you know, ideologically, but maybe that too. Um, it's, it's fascinating to me how late modern Protestants are always like, we need a new reformation. You know, it's going to happen. It's, it's, it's going to be there. And, you know, like years ago, it was very popular to kind of uh, remember Phyllis Tickle's thing. Like every 500 years, the church right. has a, yeah. you know, this grand rummage sale. You know, that was just a, is such, a, a, such a beautifully articulate uh, quote. But I don't know. Like I'm, I've, never, I've never been one that thought that maybe that it functions in that kind of deep structuralist kind of way that you can just kind of wait every 500 years. So, I mean, because we forget even in the West, like, you know, the, the the 16th century brings along the Reformation, but there were reform movements for almost 200 years before that. Yeah, And we forget that it's in the 14th century across the West that people feel like religion has absolutely failed them. And now there are two rival popes, one in Rome mm. and one in France. Mm. And like, how do we go on? And then a plague right whips through. And, you know, there, there's certain senses to me, like the moment we're at here in the third decade of the 21st century reflects more if you're, if you kind of have a, a Euro, a Euro perspective here, which maybe you shouldn't. But if you did, I think we're more like the 14th century than we are, say, the 16th century. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like we're at a time of, of plague. Yeah. We're at a time of deep distrust about religious institutions. Um, and, but what what is to say uh, about that is even in that period, there were deep calls for reformation, for reforming um, things. And mm-hmm. there were reform movements that, that occurred. What will really be ultimately um, could produce the whether the, these these big reforms like with a capital R or mm. just the necessity of reforms and and honestly historically to be a Western Christian to be a lat to, to have your history back to Latin Christendom is to always be about reforming you know like we just yeah. have kind of been obsessed with reforming ourselves since like the 11th century really um, and but it, if there's going to be I think huge change I'm just fascinated because you know like I lived through the early 2000s and everyone was talking about how at least American Protestantism was in the midst of a huge reformation, you know, and, and denominations were disappearing and all that. Mm. And it, it didn't really come to fruition. And part of the reason for that, I think, is that when you look at these reform movements, that the ones that really 
take off or the ones that really do make changes are ultimately theological conversations, that they are ways of imagining anew the way this God acts in the world. They're not, they're only secondarily reshaping the church institutionally. They, the church is only reshaped institutionally because the imagination of how this God moves and acts in the world and what it means to be obedient to this God's moving and acting in the world demands that we organize ourselves in different ways, that we, that we think differently about you know, sacramental life or we think differently about, um, about leadership or whatever. But I think in some ways what we've done in late modernity, at least in the American reality of this, is try to do it the reverse way. Like, let's reorganize the church and then, well, however that works out theologically, that's fine. But, you know, like really, especially like 16th century reformations are all about trying to articulate and reread the Bible, really, you know, like reread the Bible. And, and like Luther's trying to think about the way we encounter God as the psalmist does, you know, like mm. how do we encounter this living God this way? How do we get back to um the kind of depth of of the of this encounter with the living God that's that's witnessed to in the scriptures, you know. So it, it's first of all a kind of question of how God acts, and only second there then how should we organize ourselves? And I think again, as late modern people in this kind of secular age, where it's hard for us to think about a God who is an agent moving in history, that, that that's something we have to work at thinking like. We just don't have imaginations that are framed that way. We want to think first of like how do we reorganize institutional structures and then therefore bring reform. I have no faith that any reform can happen that isn't a fundamentally theological conversation about how distinct communities are encountering the living presence of God. Mm. Or perhaps asking who, what, when, where, why yeah. is the church? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, that's great. Like, yeah. Um, because that's sort of uh, do you do you do you sense? I don't. I'm, I'm, I know you've probably done. Your work has been like broad, you know, broad strokes and pretty deep as far as uh, where you're getting your information from and who you're interviewing and all that sort of stuff. But um, are you branching outside of of Protestantism? Like, are you getting this sense from other places as well? Or um, yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I uh, I think it would be fair to say that uh, that most of my human interactions remain pretty much with Protestant right. folks. Like, you know, like this is, these are the people who invite me to come talk to them. And you're you're like our, that. you're our Pope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be a very dangerous thing in, in multiple ways. But, uh, so, you know, I, I wouldn't want to kind of oversell that, but I, I have had a lot of, you know, really good conversations with Catholic folks and a lot of, um, interactions with, uh, kind of Orthodox people on the ground too. And my, my own reading kind of has, has branched off that way. Mm -hmm. Like the, the kind of whole project of kind of thinking about how we got to this time where, like I was saying, it's hard for us. It's just our imaginations are framed yeah. to not think of God as an actor in history. Um, that that takes work even for the deepest believing person to kind of to kind of live out of that reflex. Uh, it's taken me to do a lot of, of reading back and kind of medieval period and, yeah. and things like that. And then I, I have certain affinities towards certain kind of uh, orthodox thinking. So yeah. reading those theologians, um, but then also talking to some of those ministers and pastors that I've had the privilege to. But yeah. if you really line them up, I'm still mainly in conversation with Protestant yeah. folks. But, the reason uh, I was asking is like, like, like um, yeah, oh, I was wondering, you know, how much 
how much perhaps like in, like Orthodox movements or Orthodox areas, churches, areas of Orthodox churches um, might, are they, are they already matching sort of this vision that you have or are they struggling with the same sort of busyness sort of like, are they, is the church decline um, bothering them in the same way that it's bothering us kind of thing? Um, yeah, it's a great question. And I or really do they model, like do they model the right. waiting better or something? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, in some ways I think you could say, uh, you could say they do, that their liturgical life allows for that, that their uh, kind of sense of the way prayer functions in a deeply kind of mystical way allows for that. But if you talk to those folks on the ground, which, you know, knowing them and having a, a student who, who is uh, deep in that community and leadership in that community, there's a lot of freaking out about, particularly about their young people not wanting to come to church. And yeah. there becomes a lot of like, it's a very deep theology that does not, really imagine God in any kind of functionalistic category, you know, like as, as, as kind of, there's no, there's a real safeguards in orthodoxy to imagine God as a technology that just solves problems. You know what I mean? Mm. Where I think Protestants, especially American Protestants have that danger that God's a technology, you plug it, it got in and God solves your problems. There's a lot of safeguards to that, but then it will lead leaders to want to pull their hair out because when it comes to like, let's just, how do we get our young people to come? It becomes really functionalistic. Yeah. Even though you walk into the worship service, there's no functionalism whatsoever. There's this deep kind of spirituality. So at some levels, they're at a better place and at other levels, they're right where we are, like just kind of anxious about the viability of congregational life and things like that. Mm. But the, the inherent kind of theological structures, I mean, I think in Protestantism, they're there too. Like there's this deep sense of what it means to pray and and what it means to, to um, you know, encounter one another to be with and for one another and not for kind of any instrumental purpose like there that stuff is deep within protestant traditions too but uh yeah but i i think it's right more it's more at the surface and and, and say the orthodox tradition okay yeah cool Hey man, thanks for that. Like, I think we could probably we could talk for a long, long time. Uh, but hopefully, what we've what we've uh, what we've discussed so far is enough to yeah. um, to scratch the surface for some people who are listening and maybe um, think about some of the things you said a little bit deep, more deeply, and maybe you know, hopefully, investigate some of your uh, some of your books and and check out your podcast for more insight too. That'd be cool. Um, I thank you again for coming on and for sharing all that all that with us today. Um, what is next for you? Do you anything you're working on? Like how many books do you have in the works this year? <laughs> Are you coming to New Zealand well, anytime soon? Like what's yeah. Well for yeah, well I mean first and foremost, I'd love to come back to New Zealand. So obviously it's been since before the the pandemic. So yeah. um yeah. you know, I New Zealand is one of my favorite places to visit. So I, I would just throw that out there. But I'll I'm talk to some people. Definitely open to that. Yeah, yeah. I'm <laughs> I'm totally open to it. Uh, but yeah, like you know, you've been kind enough to reference when the church stopped stops working that comes out in, in in may and it really is a book for people uh well i think that the the ministry of secular age series is is really for pastors and kind right. of you know church professional folks people probably with seminary degrees or some kind of theological education mm. it's not the let me you know i guess the subtext is not the easy they're not the easiest books to read gotcha. yeah. but so this when the church stops working is supposed to really be uh kind of for lay people cool, cool, uh, cool. That, a, that a pastor could use with a staff or lay staff uh, you know lay, lay leaders in their church read with a, their council or whatever mm. so that will come out in may and then i have the sixth volume in this ministry in a secular age series yeah. that, that's coming out um and I always forget the title of it, but it is called, sorry, this is really ugly, ugly consumer pitch, but the sixth volume is called The Church in an Age of Secular Mysticisms. So cool. it's a kind of examining 
kind of spirituality and transformation and how we got to a culture where people all want to, everybody wants to be spiritual, but uh, uh, very few people really care about classic forms of religion mm, and mm. what's lost in the midst of that and how we got here. Mm. Sounds great. Yeah, really looking forward to yeah. that. I did, um, I, I saw that, um, the post you put up of the, uh, like the pre, the pastor's pre, um, what is it, like a, to, to be given a, a gift of the, of the new book coming out. It's like yeah, a pre-read yeah. thing, whatever. I was like, yeah. put my name on for that. Maybe you'll get one. Cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, ho- I hope you do. That'd man. be really cool. I hope you do. Um, yeah. And, if, it, and if, you, if you don't, uh, or if you just want a hard copy yeah, of the book, well, I'll, I know where to go. You know, let me know and I'll send you one. I know where to go, surely. All right, cool, man. Thanks. Um, yeah, if uh, if people want to reach out to you, um, is, there a, is there a way for them to, to email or ask questions directly yeah. to you? Yep, they, they, they can. You can. I mean, if you Google me, you'll find my email at uh, Luther Seminary, but you can also on my website, which is just andrewroot.org, which don't ask me why it's a .org, but it, <laughs> it is. Um, uh, you, you'll, you'll see a little, uh, I don't know what it's called, like a little comment um, place where you can you can drop me okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll, yeah. it'll it'll get to me. So, cool. um, yeah, people can find me that way. Sounds good. Thanks, man. Um, so now, if, if anyone um, else has questions or thoughts on what we've discussed today, of course you can you can pop those questions or comments in a safe space on our Facebook group, facebook.com slash the Honest Theology Podcast. And um, yes, yeah, thanks, Andrew, Andy, for coming on again, and uh, thank you for listening along. And do join our podcast community on Facebook. And uh, yeah, I hope you join me again next time on the Honest Theology Podcast. Peace be with you.